Amen. Please be seated if you're in the room. As Becky said, or Luke said right at the beginning of the service, we're going to be continuing with our theme, our mini-series this week, simply titled The Home of the Heart. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a little recap. Some of you may have missed last week. That's absolutely fine. You'll still be able to pick up exactly where we're going and what we're doing. But if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to the text that we're going to camp in for the rest of our time together as I preach this morning, we're going to be going to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, looking at two verses, verses 8 to 10. And it simply says this. One day, Elisha went to a place called Shunem. And a well-to-do means a wealthy woman was there who, look at the language here, she urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. Verse 9, she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. And then she said, verse 10, let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. And I said last week, as I was reading the scripture, for me, God predominantly speaks to me into my life through the reading of his words. And I just had this sense in my heart as I was reading these few short verses that God was asking me, if your heart is a home, do you allow me the same access that this Shunammite woman and her husband allowed Elisha? You see, Elisha was a prophet of the time. He was God's spokesperson. He was his mouthpiece. Elisha literally carried with him the presence of God. When he spoke, things happened. And the woman knew this and she noticed this. And what she wanted was that presence to come and reside in her house. So as I was reading, this question just came to my heart, came to my mind. How much access does God have to the home of my heart? Of course, as I said, we're not talking about the organ that pumps just to the left of the centre of our chest. We're talking about that spacious place within our spirits and souls, the attitudes, the things that make us, us. We know that we recognise each other by our faces, by how we look and how we dress. But the thing, the essence that makes us, us, the eternal part of us is our soul. And I just felt this picture of the, the home of the heart, that if the heart was a home, how much access are we allowing God into it? Last week, we looked at the lounge of the heart. We looked at that front-facing facade, that mask that we put on, that the people we meet day to day, this is where we host them in our lives. We can be whoever we want to be. We don't have to go too deep. We just give them little snippets of information until we can trust them. And we then went out into the hallway and into the kitchen and we looked at our diets and the things we consume. We said we are what we eat. We know that if you're constantly eating McDonald's, you're probably going to start to look like a burger. If you're eating healthy, you'll probably start to look quite fit. And it's exactly the same with the things we consume in our minds and our spirit. If we're binging horror films constantly on Netflix, probably we're going to be a bit jumpy when it comes tonight. If we're uh, feasting on the words of God, probably that will begin to shape and form the spiritual aspect for us. So that's where we went last week. We looked at the downstairs of the home of the heart. But this week, we're going to do something a little bit differently. and We're going to traverse up a staircase and go into the upstairs of the home of the heart. So if you've got a notepad or a pen, I'd really encourage you to take notes. Oftentimes I'm found when I'm listening to preachers or teachers and I'm taking notes, I will hear things that aren't being said. And I honestly believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's some things I'll say this morning that are absolutely stupid and dumb. And I promise you that is from Mike Nichols, not the Holy Spirit. But I believe that oftentimes God uses people to speak through them and will speak directly into a situation that we may be facing right now. So as we go upstairs of the home of the heart, I want to invite you in to my spare room. 
my spare room. You see, the spare room of the home of the heart is a brilliant place. And as you're thinking of your homes or your flats or your apartments, you might be thinking, I absolutely wish I could have a spare room. It's like me. We've got kids coming out of our ears at the minute. We don't have any spare rooms at home. But I want to tell you, in the home of the heart, we all have a spare rooms. And it's this place where we go to a place of authenticity and trust and often invite people in to meet a need. It's the spare room that really we start to do life with people authentically because no longer, like in the kitchen, are we just having people over for dinner. When you invite someone into your spare room and it becomes a guest room, you are now inviting them around your breakfast table. And that looks a little bit different to dinner time because dinner time you have ladies, time to get your makeup on and maybe that's a bit sexist. Maybe men, you like to put some makeup on as well and some mascara and that's okay, there's no judgment in church. But you have time to clear up, to vacuum, to shove all the things under the sofa that you don't want to see as people come over and they share a meal with you at night time. You see, the morning after the night before, there's usually dishes piled on the sink. There's usually clothes left strewn on the bedroom floor. You've got bedhead when you come down to the breakfast table. There's no facade, there's no mask. You're allowing people in far more authentically than you do, definitely in the lounge and certainly in the kitchen. And when I first bought my first home with Becky, we were renting for a couple of months when we were first married and we got pregnant uh, after about three months and the the rented house we were in was covered in mould and damp. It just wasn't fit for purpose. And we found this absolutely amazing house. And one of the benefits of the house is even when Judah, our first son, was born, we still had a spare room. Now, everything was going fine through the pregnancy and it got to nine months and Becky went into labour, as usually happens when you were pregnant. And the birth was just really, really difficult. It was, it was much worse uh, than we ever could imagine. It's another story for another time and uh, it's probably PG-13, the amount of blood and gore was there. It wasn't pretty. But needless to say, there was a lot of recovery time for Becky, six weeks. And actually, there's quite a lot of recovery time for me as well. I'm very squeamish. I don't do well with blood and things like that. And after the first few days of being at home in our beautiful new house, and I'm trying to look after Judah the best I can, and, um, you know, as as a, a young man, I was 24 years old, I just didn't have a clue what I was doing. I wasn't even sure where the dummy went. Does it go in the ear? Does it go in the mouth? Does it go somewhere else? I was just trying to look after this baby boy. Now, thankfully, we were in the same town in Northampton as my in laws. So, what I did, I called in the cavalry and I called in my mother in law. And straight away, Linda came, Becky's mum, and she moved into our spare room. And honestly, those next few weeks were absolute bliss. I got out of changing nappies. And if you know with newborns, the first few weeks, there's alien things that come out of these children. I got out of changing nappies. I got out of doing night feeds. Linda was on hand all the time. It was absolutely amazing. And what happened physically there, we also, I think, do spiritually. You see, we invite people into the guest room or the spare room of our hearts, particularly when there's a need. We don't just do it willingly. We don't often do it just because someone needs a favour, but we invite people into the authenticity of our life, usually when we can be authentic and vulnerable enough to say, I'm struggling. And this is exactly what we do with God. You see, when we invite God into the home of the heart, We reveal new levels of authenticity, vulnerability and trust and we give him rights to our life usually for a season and it's usually sparked, as I say, by the recognition of a particular need. Now if you've been doing this church thing for any length of time, you will know there's moments where you just sort of slip into automatic and I've found often when life is good, I don't need God as much. But as soon as something happens, and that might be a medical conversation, it might be an emotional breakdown, a relational breakdown, it might be a financial need. Goodness me, I dive deep into prayer and fasting. 
I can sometimes go months without even thinking about fasting for a week or two weeks or 40 days. But as soon as a need is presented in my life, I am quick to invite Jesus into my life. Where before I was content to host him in the lounge or the kitchen, I am begging him now to come and help me with this need that I want in my life. And as I said, this is what happened with Linda. She was in, she was changing nappies, she was doing the feeds. I was living scot-free. But after three weeks, four weeks, Becky was starting to recover and we were able and we were learning. We had this safety blanket of Linda. We were able to learn where things go and what things do and how to put the nappy on the right way and how to make up formula. We got the knack of it. And it got to a point where Linda, who was literally our life-saving lifeline, began actually to be a little bit irritated. Now, you will know, thankfully, I hope she won't watch this back because she's at her own church, but it just began to get a little bit uncomfortable because you know, even the closest people in our lives, our best friends and our family members, sometimes you just want your own space. And you just want your own peace. You want to be able to go to a shower with a towel without having to duck and look around the corner to see if Linda's standing there. And there was a few awkward moments like that coming out of the shower when I met Linda on the landing and it just started to get awkward. Now, that was all easy and forgiven when she was meeting a need. But when we were starting to do things for ourselves, it just started to get a little bit irritating. And I've found we often want guests to leave the home of our heart when their presence becomes less than the benefits that we're bringing. Does that make sense? When actually them being around is more hassle than the need they were originally meeting. Now, we know storms happen in our lives. But one thing about storms is they are seasonal. And when we've weathered the storm, just like the disciples, we are calling out, Jesus, come into our boat. The sails are going this way. The rigging's going that way. Cargo's going overboard. Jesus comes, he makes peace. Well, thanks, Jesus, you can go now. You've sorted us out. Carry on. And we so have and have, I believe, particularly here in the West, this mentality with Jesus. We want to be all in. We want to fast. We want to pray. We want to do the 24-hour worship meetings when there's a need to meet. But when life is good, And when life is easy, we don't need Jesus anymore. And as we looked at the Shunammite woman going to her, verse 8, we see that Elisha came and went. He came and went. Whenever he came by, he stopped for a meal. There's a period of time between verse 8 and verse 9. And let me tell you a little bit about the Shunammite woman's house. This is a picture behind me. It will come up on your screen if you're watching at home of a first century Israelite house. And these would have been made like this for three or 400 years. So this is the sort of house this well-to-do wealthy woman and her husband would have lived in. And you will see there's a flat roof there. Now, Palestine, Israel is a little bit different to Luton. It's a lot warmer, there's less rain and there's no plains, particularly when Elisha was coming through Shunem. And what they would do, they would use these flat top roofs as like a spare room. It was multi-purpose. They would dry crops here. They would sunbathe here. They would host dinner parties here. And that obviously is the purpose of a spare room. You can use it in whatever season you need to, whether it's a guest room, a junk room, a spare room. It can be a gym. I know friends in our church who who have been around to their houses, some of them have cross trainers in their spare rooms. They're multi-purpose and they can change. They're flexible. But what the woman did in building a house, building, sorry, a room on top of her house, she gave a sense of permanence to Elisha. And she was a wealthy woman, as we said, she was well-to-do. But actually, this would have cost her more than a building project. It would have cost her more than an architect. It would have cost her more than a contractor. She was giving up a part of flexibility in her life because what she saw in Elisha, she recognised she wanted permanently in her home. And I put here, they wanted Elisha to be at home in their home. 
They didn't just want him to come by as a guest. They weren't running an Airbnb. Okay, They didn't go on the app and book him in for a couple of days. As I said last week, he came whenever he wanted. This is before email, before text message, before WhatsApp, before all the inventions we have today. This man would just turn up any time. And they would quickly shuffle out a sleeping bag from their cupboard, throw it on top of the roof and allow him to stay there. He'd go the next morning and they'd put the cross trainer back, they'd put the gym equipment back, they'd put the crops back. But in building a room on her house, she was saying to Elisha, this isn't just your house, this is your home. Look at this verse in Ephesians 3, verse 17 to 18. Christ will make his home in your heart as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is. And what was happening with Elisha here and the Shunammite couple, in them inviting the presence of God into their house, Jesus is saying to us right now, the spare room, the home of your heart, guys, I want to come in and be with you. I don't just want to reside for a night or two or maybe even two or three weeks. I want to make a home in your heart. And this point was really emphasised to me a couple of years ago, actually. I was out on a a bike ride with a friend of mine from Northampton called Greg. He's about 20 years older than me, but an amazing cyclist. Um, He he got me into road biking. We go out into the country and we just talk about the gospel and we talk about Bible verses. And one day he pulled up at the side of the road and 10 minutes later, because he was that fast, I pulled up next to him. We sat down at a bench and he said, Mike, I've just been meditating on a verse. Let me read it to you. And he read this verse. And I sort of looked at him, waiting for what's going to come next. And he said, isn't that amazing? And I said, that is amazing. But he said, but isn't it really amazing? I said, Greg, I've read this verse loads of times. It's amazing. I'm a preacher. It's what I do. I read verses and I preach about them. So what's your application? What have you got for me, Greg? He said, I've got no application. Just the fact that Jesus wants to make his home in our hearts is huge. But he did have an application. Here's what he said. Greg from Poland. He says, what you need to understand, Mike, is in Polish, we only have one word for house or home. It's just house. And he said, the English language is so beautiful. I've never heard that since, the English language being so beautiful. So the English language is so beautiful because it has two distinct words. You have the word house, but you also have the word home. And still, for me, they're interchangeable. I use them interchangeably. But he went on to unpack this a little bit. He said, you see, when you think of a house, a house is like a building. It's a place where you just habitat. So people can come in and out of a house. He says, whether it's a uni house, you go down into loot and buy the uni beds here. There's all sorts of these uni houses. People come for a year and they go, they come and they go. And they oftentimes feel quite sterile. There's no permanence in the house. They were very uh, transactional, a little bit like a travel lodge. You can make a house at a travel lodge. You go in, it all looks the same. It's all quite neutral. He says a home is completely different though because it's the people in the home that make a home home. And some of you in our church these past few weeks, you've been letting your sons and your daughters go off to university. And some of the manliest men cry and sob when their daughters go off to university. And I've had a conversation with one person where this happened in the previous few years. They sob because something is leaving their home. It's not just the presence, the, the, the personality of their son or daughter. They made home, home. And this is the application we have here. When Jesus comes into our heart, the home of our heart, he doesn't just want to be a guest in our spare room. He wants to be a full-time resident who makes our home home. He wants to, I love the language, he wants to let our roots grow down deep in him. One thing I know about gardening, which is very, very little, is that roots take a long time to develop. 
He wants to be around. He wants to shape the atmosphere. He wants to put his decor up in his spare room. He wants to make the guest room his room. And this is exactly what happened with the Shunanite woman. You see, when she made the room on top of her house and she sacrificed that spare living space, she put in it a bed, a chair, a lamp. And I love the words of the, the verse. It says, for him. This room wasn't just for anyone. It wasn't if someone's coming by, you can come and stay in this room. This was for him. And as you read on later in 2 Kings 4, you will see that years go by and she has an accident with her son and she says, go and lay my son on the bed of the man of God. It's still his room. And this is exactly what we need to do with Jesus. Now, you might be analysing this whole Jesus thing at the moment. Maybe you're not a Christian and that's absolutely fine. Maybe you're exploring the Christian faith and all that it means. And as you were assessing this metaphor and you were looking at your life and you were thinking about the commitments of following Jesus and the changes that that will invoke in your day to day, you were just looking down deep into the kitchen, the lounge, the spare room, all the different rooms in your house and you're thinking, I just haven't got room. The spare room's full. I've even got three different spare rooms, but one's a gym, one's a dance studio, one I do my ironing in. I just haven't got room for Jesus. And as we read the story, what we find out is a Shunammite woman didn't have room. She was just a little bit creative. She had some extra square footage and she made room by making room. And this is what we need to do, church, in our lives. If we feel like we haven't got room, and I said, you might not be a Jesus follower, but maybe you are a Jesus follower in everything but action and deed. Maybe you're a Jesus follower by name and you follow him and you love him, but really you just have squeezed him into a tiny little corner of your spare room or your lounge. We need to make room by making room. And as you're looking at your heart and you're just thinking it is so full right now, I just haven't got any more room. The thought of getting up and reading your Bible every day and praying every day and then committing to church and then a life group and then a prayer meeting, it just leaves your head spinning. But actually, you have far more square footage in the home of your heart than you realise. Because the last room that I want to look at today is a room we often don't think of as a room. And in a lot of our houses, in the physical, we have got more room than we realise, but we don't think of this place as a room. This place, of course, is the loft or the attic, depending on how posh or American you are. Okay, the loft. I use those words interchangeably because I watch so much American TV. The loft or the attic. And we had a little trip into my loft over Christmas. And if you were here and around, then you may remember our boiler broke and just destroyed sort of our loft and leaked through our ceiling. All the heat and went in the middle of December. It was an absolute nightmare. And the application of that metaphor was that oftentimes the most important things in our lives that sustain us and keep us are the unseen things. And that is absolutely true in the loft, but the loft also serves another purpose than just holding our boiler. If you go into my loft, and I'm sure if I went into your loft, our lofts tell the story of our history through objects. There's photo albums and there's toys and there's old cribs. I'm betting there's a lot of wedding dresses that you wish you could still fit into in your lofts. Oftentimes we take down a wedding dress and Becky will try it on just to relive the time. But we have all these memories stuffed away in our lofts. And this is all good. It tells a story of who we are. But also, I think, there's a darker side to the loft. Because the loft is a place that even when you invite people into your guest room for a season, even if it's months, maybe even years, they will very, very, very rarely have access into the loft. And I think a lot of us do this with Jesus as well. Jesus, you have access anywhere. Use the kitchen, use the facilities. The guest room is now your room, but don't go in the loft. 
When I was a kid, I was never allowed in the loft. It was this magical, mystical place. And, and it's fascinating to see that with my children now. They look like in awe with wide eyes at the ceiling where there's this loft hatch. And they think all sorts of magical things happen up there. But I was never allowed up there because it was dangerous. We had just boarded just around the loft hatch. Uh, we could go up and stand. But other than that, you'd have to jump across the beams. Has anyone else's loft got that? Because if you miss the beams, you're going to fall through the ceiling. That's what I was always told. You're going to drop. You're going to break your neck. You're going to break your legs. It's really, really dangerous. And the loft of the home of our heart is really dangerous because it's in here. We store things we don't want anyone else to see, but we know we've got access to if we just pull out a little ladder, if we just get it, pull out the little loft hatch, if we just have a little creep up there, we can pull it out or we can put it back. I'm talking, of course, of what we would call sin. The things that we do that we know would displease God. Now, sin is a very religious word, but really all it means is anything we do that turns our attention or our time away from spending time with Jesus. And it's in the loft, we keep all these things. We keep the memories, we keep the secrets, and we also keep things that are really destructive to us and will make us fall fall through the floorboards like unforgiveness and jealousy and bitterness. And we let it just foster there. And as I was thinking about this illustration of the loft of the home of the heart, I was reminded of a time, it was about 12 years ago now, I had just left Bible college and I was interning at my home church. I was learning the ropes of what it means to be in church work and be a minister shadowing my pastor at the time. But for some weekend work, I I, I got um, with my dad who'd just taken over a business. My dad's a solicitor and he had taken over this law firm. And uh, he said, Mike, if you want to earn some extra cash, come down, I've got a little job for you. Now, when everyone... When anyone says I've got a little job for you, especially if it's your dad, it's not a little job. You see, my dad took over a firm called Nicholas Brimble. Now, really, really easy. Our surname is Nichols, so it became Nichols Brimble. And Nick Brimble, who was the owner of this firm for 40 years, he was just an amazing solicitor, absolutely phenomenal, and also a businessman. Where his shop was that my dad partnered with him and took over, he owned the whole terrace of the high street. He had eight properties. His Um, business was in the middle. Next door, there was a hairdresser. The other side, there was a restaurant. There was a convenience shop. And what Nick did, he he made a lot of his money just by letting out these different shops and these properties. And he told the property uh, managers, you can do whatever you want inside. If you need to gut anything, gut gut it. You want to change anything, change it. Put up shelving pictures, you carry on. But do not go in the loft. And he actually went so far as to bolt shut all the loft hatches. Now, he didn't have any dead bodies up there or anything like that. But what he did do, 40 years of being a solicitor, absolutely amazing solicitor, absolutely awful file keeper. Because in the lofts, he had knocked them all through into these cavernous, massive rooms. And he had 40 years worth of files. That's not 40 files, that's 40 years worth of files stored up here. Now, legally, seven years is probably the majority of the time those files need to be kept. Of course, the wills and the testaments, they need to be kept forever. But seven years, you're meant to get the files down, take them to an incinerator and have them professionally burned. But he didn't do that. Nick was a great solicitor, absolutely awful file keeper, because actually he was a hoarder. And if you went into his office, you would understand he is a hoarder. So I went, actually, as I was thinking through this, I thought, oh, I must have a picture somewhere. Because I remember going up, crawling up into this loft space, this huge loft, and was horrified by the mess that was there. And this is from 12 years ago, from my Instagram. This is, as soon as you went up in the loft hatch, this was the first picture you saw. It was messy. Nick had hoarded. It was dangerous, and it was disordered. 
Now, all the lofts that were stored, the, the, the team there, there's about seven or eight people who were working that one building. They were meant to take the files up and go and place them in order. But because Nick had let it get so messy, they didn't go up and place it in order. They would just pop their head through and they would throw the box. And this is what had happened. So my little job took me four months as I had to start to wade through things, nearly kill myself on a number of occasions, all sorts of bugs and cobwebs, horrible things under there. But the lesson I learned in those months is when you hold on to things too long, they obstruct and take up valuable room. You see, I am a book lover. And as I looked at that cavernous loft, those four, five, six lofts that had been knocked through, I thought this would make the most amazing reading room be a phenomenal library. You could fit thousands and thousands of books up here. But actually, it was just a complete mess. It was dangerous. I kept tripping, stubbing my toe, kept having spiders running up and down my arms as I was moving these boxes. And actually, the room that was meant to help Nick actually started to hinder Nick because he could never find what he was looking for if he needed to go back and look for it. And as I said, his office staff, they would go up there and they'd just throw things. And the room started to be defined as the torture room. That's what they call it. They call it the torture room. And this room was defined as the torture room. And there's a phrase that I sort of came up with or, or, or I guess inhabited in my heart as I went into ministry. And it was this, and it's so poignant for this moment here. And it was this, the past should remind us but never define us. Because when I went into ministry, as we talked about last week, I had all sorts of imposter syndrome and things from my past. I thought that's completely going to disqualify me from speaking into that situation or this situation. I just felt God say, the past should remind you, but never define you. One of the first Bible verse I committed to memory was Romans 8.1. It says, there is now, then, sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation from Christ Jesus. Verse 2 said, he has set you free from the power of sin and the law. There is no condemnation now. And as I have done church work and met church people in the three different churches I've been in now, I've found beautiful, God-fearing, talented, gifted, anointed people of God who have been defined and shaped by their past rather than what God is calling them to. And we know, don't we, church, we have a spiritual enemy. And it's these things in the attics of the home of our heart that when we get a new opportunity or when we feel God leading us or, or calling us or pulling us into something new, it's the enemy that comes and whispers in our ear. But don't you remember you did that or you said that and you can't forgive here and you're bitter about this and you're jealous about that. See, the attic room was defined by the mess and the danger of what was happening in that moment. But actually, Jesus says you should be defined by who I am. I'm not going to speak loads on this because this is all going to be in our September campaign about identity. But I believe there are people sat in this room watching online. Shirley, as we were in worship, had a word. Says, uh, and she just said, I feel there's someone in here who just feels so pulled back and just needs to know that they're forgiven. This is this message. There are things that you think are disqualifying you from what God has called you to, but absolutely not. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus has freed you. He has paid the, the price on the, on the cross. He died for that sin. He died for you and he rose again. You see, when you allow the past to define you, it will distort the whole home of your heart. You will begin to decorate the home of your heart according to what you've done or what you've said or what happened to you. Sometimes the things in our past aren't things we've done, but something that has happened to us and we just can't get past. And I remember as I was, um, as I was a kid, sort of 10, 11 years old, every week I used to go and stay at my granddad's house. Absolutely loved it, my nan and granddad's house. Friday, Saturday, and he'd take me back to church and hand me back over to my mum on Sunday. 
But for years and years, every Friday night, I would go up into his little office room and he would have all these VHS recorded videos. And he'd have them in those ones that look like books. Do you remember those leather bound books? He'd have them all up. He'd have an index of them. And he used to introduce me to these classic films. There was never anything sort of newer than 20 years old. Uh, Tom Brown's School Days, have you ever seen that? Bridge Over the River Kwai, the original Bond films. We had an amazing time on Friday night. But my absolute favourite of all was a a film called Great Expectations. It's an adaption of the Charles Dickens book. I'm not talking about the new one. The new one's absolutely terrible. I don't recommend it. I'm talking about the 1946 version, the original. And as I was thinking about the past defining us and shaping us and talking and dictating where our future self is going, there's one character that just popped into my mind as I was writing this message on Thursday. There's a character in the film Great Expectations or the book Great Expectations called Miss Havisham. Does anyone know Miss Havisham? You may have done it in English literature at school. If you don't know, this is the lady here who's um, sort of adapting her in film. And the story of Miss Habersham is a a tragic one. She was a young, beautiful, wealthy woman and she just fell head over heels in love with this man. And she was so excited because this man went on to propose to her and they set up their wedding day. And everything was perfect. They had a wedding feast, guests. She had the most beautiful dress. The the mansion was done up phenomenally. Candles, chandeliers, everything that works. No cost spared. But what happened? It got to the time when she was due to be married and her suitor, her fiancé, her future husband stood her up. He didn't show up. And she waited an hour. She waited two. She waited a day. She waited two. She waited a week. She waited two. And she was so hurt and so distraught at what had happened and being stood up on her wedding day. She stopped every single clock in her house. All the wedding feasts, she didn't let the guests touch. She kicked them all out of her house and she sat down and then for decades she didn't move. She stayed in a wedding dress. She had all the food laid out, all the gifts laid out, never ever touched again. She let her past situation define her. She was a young, beautiful, wealthy woman. She had every prospect ahead of her. But in holding on to something that never happened, she absolutely disqualified herself from living a fruitful life. And actually, when you allow your past to define the home of your heart, it will be contaminated with rot, decay and poison. And as the camera pans round in this 1946 film, you see the cobwebs, you see the decaying food and you see Miss Havisham sat there in a wedding dress. But what she does, she even poisons the people then who come to try and help her. Pip, the young suitor who comes and, and starts to help around the house, he's introduced to a young girl who Miss Havisham has adopted called Estella. She's beautiful. But what Miss Havisham does, she lives her past her through Estella. Generationally, she passes it on to her and she causes Estella to hurt Pip. You see, when we don't deal things with things in our own life, things that hurt us and sidetrack us, we become contagious with it. And you've been around people who are never happy. They're always bitter or they're always sad and the unforgiveness seeps out of them. It's because they've never dealt with anything. And as I was in that loft in Nicholas Brimble, becoming Nichols Brimble, sorting out the boxes and the files and all the sorts of things that were left there, it was backbreaking, it was hot, it was sweaty, it was hard. Because it is hard work clearing out things that should have gone a long time ago. When you let them pile up, when you let it get bigger and bigger, it becomes harder and harder and harder. But you know what? We serve a God who created the cosmos. He didn't just create you and me, he created the cosmos. And when we are looking for architects to to sort out wasted square footage in our lives, we have the best person willing to help us, the creator of the universe. You see, the writer Hebrews says this, it's a verse Becky read just a few weeks ago. 
He says, let us approach God's throne with grace and with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Look at this word, to help us in our time of need. Some of us need mercy and grace and a helping hand as we're traversing up into the loft hatch of our lives. As we're looking at the mess and we don't know where to begin, God is standing there saying, look, we can make this loft a home. We can make this loft a room where I can inhabit. But I want to tell you, church, although God is the creator of the cosmos, he's the creator of you and I, he will only affect where you allow. It's not because he can't break into your life. It's not because he can't take all the things in an instance. What he wants to do, he wants us to know for ourselves that we need help. You see, when Jesus calls us, he doesn't just call us from something. He calls us to something. He calls us away from something and to himself. He wants us to realise he is a God that we can rely on, but he also calls us to repentance. And repentance is a churchy word that many of us who've been brought up in the church sometimes get our heckles up at because when we think of repentance, we think of a fire and brimstone evangelist shouting from a platform about how wrong you are, how dirty you are, how sinful you are. And there's truth in that. But when we've heard the word repentance, we recoil because we think it's an aggressive thing. Repentance isn't aggressive. All repentance means in its original definition is to turn from something and turn to something. And when we realise God is waiting there and He's saying, look guys, you need to come with confidence to my throne. It's here where you'll find the mercy and grace. It's an invitation. See, repentance isn't something forced on us. It's an invitation to change into something better. And as I said, after three months, I cleaned and I vacuumed and I dusted cobwebs and I threw things away and I booked the incinerator. And this is the portion of the same place uh, of one of the lofts. You see, when God comes in and He begins to order things in our life, He doesn't want to incinerate everything because some of the memories and even some of the pain and some of the hurt has formed us into the resilient people we are today. What they need to be done, they need to be boxed up. The things that have spilled out and caused a mess, they need to be boxed up. They need to be filed. The things that need to go, God will take, but the things that need to remind us where not to go back through, He will put away neatly. And that dirty, horrible loft in the home of our heart can become an extension which will find far more square footage in our lives. You see, just like the Shunammite woman, she had this derelict space on top of her house which could be used for all sorts of things, but she put time and effort and she made it a habitable place for Jesus to come and reside permanently. And there's a verse I go back to all the time. You've heard me preach it if you've been in this church uh, for any length of time since I've been here. And it's Revelation 3. 20 says this he says here I am this is Jesus talking to the church I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me Jesus is saying I am absolutely powerful I'm absolutely all-encompassing I'm omnipresent omnipotent I am the creator of the universe what Jesus doesn't do is come with a sledgehammer he stands and he waits for an invitation he knocks And as we look this past two weeks at the home of the heart, I want to ask you, church, if Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, what door is he knocking at? Maybe, as I said, you don't know who Jesus is at all. You've you've just felt compelled to to come and check out a relationship with him or come and find out what this whole church thing is about. And maybe you're in the building and that's you. Maybe you're online and you're watching and you're thinking, I've never really thought about it, but there's just something that wants me to explore this. Well, that's Jesus standing at the outside of the home of your heart and he's knocking. Or maybe you've been doing this Jesus thing for a while now. You're a Jesus follower. You consider yourself as part of his family, but he's in your house and he's standing at a lounge door or a kitchen door or a spare room door and he's knocking. He's saying, am I allowed in this portion 
at the home of your heart. Or maybe some of us have just been so weighed down with baggage and with things and with stuff from our past. And Jesus got access everywhere, but he's looking up at that loft hatch just like my children do. And he's thinking, I wonder what goes on up there. Will you allow me to come up and remodel with you? You say you've got no room. Well, there's some room. Let's clear it out. Let's tidy it up. Let me come and reside. Let me make your house my home. We're going to invite the band back now, but I'm going to come up just at the end. And as you're thinking about that, the external door, the internal door, the loft hatch, maybe you want to respond to one of those prayers. You know, we don't stand up here and preach. I don't take time to write messages just to fill 20, 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Don't do it to get a paycheck. I do it because I believe that God wants to speak to his people. Sometimes he does it through me. Sometimes he does it through other people. Sometimes he does it through your neighbour, your friend. But maybe as you were looking at the home of your heart, you need a surveyor to come in, the Holy Spirit, and look around and say, we need to fix this. We need a little bit of access here. We need to change the plumbing here. Maybe he's at the external door of your heart. He's saying, let me come in. Let me just come into the lounge. Let's explore this together. Maybe he wants to come for a meal. Let's look at what we're consuming in our spiritual lives. Does there need to be a shift here? Do we need to ditch the chips and go to sweet potato fries? Do we need to change things up, mix it up? Or maybe, as I said, he's looking at the loft hatch. But I'm going to lead three prayers at the end of this song. And you don't have to come up or do anything like that. We can do it sat where we are, stood where we are, or watching from home. But just take this moment as we join together in worship now to consider if God has been speaking to you. Thank you, church.